we just thank you that we could gather around the word of God. Lord, we see your word as the authority, not us. And so, God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that it would pierce our hearts. We pray, God, that um, our hearts would be good soil for the seed of your word. May it take root in us, Lord. May it produce much, much fruit, Lord. And so, God, this morning, we thank you for the written word. It's to lead us to the living word. And, Jesus, we want to know you more today. And so, God, would you just bless this time in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus are called the often what? The pastoral epistles, right? The pastoral letters uh, written by the Apostle Paul to two young pastors, Titus and Timothy. And uh, I, I like that name, the pastoral epistle. How many of you guys heard that title before for these three letters? Even sometimes the Bi- your, your Bible will put that in there, the pastoral Epistles, but here's the thing about the pastoral epistles, funny enough, is that, I mean, relatively speaking, that's a new title for those books. Since the 1700s, a, a pastor did a series and he called it the pastoral epistles on these three books, and the title kind of stuck. And, and so, you know, yes, Paul is going to talk about pastoring, he's going to talk about church leadership and church order and, and some structure and thing, things, but, but I think calling it the pastoral epistle moves it a little bit away from the heart of what we're going to see is the message to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus where he is. Uh, really, the, the heart, I think, of 1 Timothy is this, is that the gospel leads to godliness. That, that the gospel doesn't just modify your behavior, that's not what it's about, but that it spiritually should transform your life. And so Paul's going to talk to Timothy lots about spiritual transformation and how the gospel should uh, affect the church and the lives of those who believe in it. Yes, he's going to talk about the church. Yes, he's going to talk about leadership and order in that conversation. But it's really about how the gospel leads to godliness in the people of God. How Jesus brings transformation to your life. You know, it's interesting. uh, Lots of churches claim, you know, to follow the model of 1 Timothy. And they say, hey, you know, that's where we take the structure of our leadership, the structure of our church government, the structure of our church culture from that book. You know, the, the Catholics claim that, the Presbyterians claim that, the Brethren claim that. I mean, all sorts of groups say, look at 1 Timothy, that's the model. We follow it, and yet uh, there's so much diversity in the styles of church government, and everybody's following 1 Timothy. And so, you know, it, it's just kind of interesting, and, and so that's why I want to say to us, you know, this, this letter is about, as much as it's about, or more than it's about church order, it's about spiritual transformation through the power of Jesus Christ. Now, now Timothy, this character, this letter is a little bit different than a lot of Paul's letters because it's not written to a church specifically. It's written to an individual. So it's got a little bit of a different flavor to it. Now, Timothy first appears on the pages of scripture in Acts chapter 16. The Bible tells us that he was uh, born of a mixed marriage. His father was from Belfast. It's Irish. His mother was a limey. No, just kidding. His father was a geek, my notes actually say. That should be Greek. His father was a Greek and his mother was a Jew, okay? Uh, Born of a mixed marriage. Yeah, they're a little slow there. And uh, 
Paul met Timothy on a second missionary journey. Actually, Acts tells us that Paul uh, went to the city of Lystra, which was Timothy's hometown. And there, the mob grabbed him and they stoned him. They, dr- they drug him out of town, believing that he was dead, and they left him there. And the Bible tells us that the believers in that city gathered around him. They laid hands on him. And when they prayed for him, Paul got up. Now, I don't know. Was he, was he dead? I mean, those who stoned him believed that he was dead, okay? Whatever it was, the Lord miraculously touched the life of, of Paul there in, in Lystra. And I think it probably had a profound effect on this young man who was hanging around the church named Timothy. Uh, you know, Timothy was well spoken of by those in the church. They sensed that God's call was upon his life. They gathered around him. They, they laid hands on him and prayed for him. They prophesied over his life and ministry. And Paul took Timothy and he brought him along as part of his missionary uh, team, part of his church planting team. And he went and he preached the gospel with Paul over the, all over the place. Lots of times Paul sent Timothy into different spots to deal with things. He was sent back to the province of Macedonia after Paul had been uh, traveling through there. Uh, later on, you know, we just come through the books of Thessalonians. Timothy was sent there to deal with that church after Paul had done work there. On the third missionary journey, Timothy was super active in the work that happened in Corinth. And when Paul had moved from, on from there, he sent Timothy back again to Corinth. And, and there seems to be some illusion in the scriptures. As we know, Timothy, one of the things about his nature was that he was kind of a timid character. And he couldn't get a handle on what was going on in, uh, in Corinth. And so Paul called him back and he sent this more forceful young guy by the name of Titus to go deal with those hardcore Corinthians. And Timothy was sent off to Ephesus to establish its church, help establish its church and its leadership. And so here he is, this letter, 1 Timothy, he's in the city of Ephesus. That's the church he's with. So, you know, the Ephesian letter comes before this. And now Timothy's there and he's in in Ephesus pastoring this church. I'm not sure, but I don't think that uh, there's any such thing as an easy pastorate or or an easy church. You know, I got a pretty good hair. I got to admit. Yeah, I do, don't I? Yeah. (laughs) You know, Ernest Shackleton, when he was putting together his team to go out on their expedition, put an advertisement in the London London newspaper, and he said this. Men wanted for a hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, Honor and recognition in case of success. Does that sound appealing to you? Well, it did to thousands of men. Thousands and thousands of men applied to join Ernest Shackleton and to be a part of that team because of, you know, it was an opportunity for adventure. It was an opportunity for the adventure of a lifetime. And, you know, I was just thinking about, I wonder if, if, if you were to put, you know, if Jesus posted an ad in the Coast Reporter... You probably wouldn't find it, never see it amongst everything going on. But, you know, maybe, what would it say? Men and women wanted for the difficult task of helping assist to build my church. You'll often be misunderstood, even at times by those working with you. You'll face attack by an unseen enemy. You may not see the results of your labor. The real reward won't come until after your work is done. 
It'll cost you ambitions, maybe your life, your finances. I mean, does it, does it, sorry, man, my voice is kind of, I've been shouting on a hockey bench all weekend long. Four games yesterday, four losses. I got the pink slip at the end of the day. You know. So my voice is a little bit weary this weekend. Does it sound appealing to you, that kind of, uh, you know, advertisement? You know, it sounds appealing when it comes from the Lord. It really does. And Timothy was timid, but he was called to do the work. And I don't know what your nature is and what things in your human nature that you battle against and what comes against you, but you know you're called to do a work for the Lord. Each of us called to a ministry. You know, I think there's a sense as you read about Timothy that you can see that he, he struggled with discouragement. You know, he had some sort of physical ailment where we're going to see later on in these letters where Paul says, you know, Timothy, you got that stomach thing going on. Drink a little wine once in a while to deal with that. You know, or, or think about this. Timothy had to follow in the footsteps of Paul. That, that's like a, a pastor's worst nightmare. You know, to come in after a guy like that who established a church is great. Okay. I'm like lesser in everything than that guy. There were a lot of obstacles for Timothy, but the fact of the matter is this. There were also a lot of opportunities in front of him. And that's always how it is when we're following Jesus Christ. You will find obstacles and you will find opportunities. And in faith, you've got to navigate them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as this letter was written to Timothy, you know, Paul's going to talk to him, explaining to him how, how to lead the church, how to do some different things, talk about the authority of the gospel, talk about its power to transform that Timothy was not just some guy to Paul. He had been sent by the Apostle Paul. He was his son in, this, in the faith. He, he was, you know, his young protege. And so Paul's going to talk about in this first chapter here some of the responsibilities of the pastor, but also responsibilities, the same responsibilities that the church itself bears. So it's, it's to us that, that what we bear in following Christ. And in verse 1 it says this. Let's check it out. Paul, an apostle to Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Right from the start, like Paul always does, he asserts his leadership. He affirms himself to be apostle, to be an apostle. He says, I'm a sent one commissioned by God by his command. I'm not confused about that. It packs this idea that Paul was sent on a royal commission uh, from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Paul was commissioned to be his apostle, his sent one. Now, why does that matter? Because it adds weight to the ministry of Timothy in the city of Ephesus. God sent Paul. Paul sent Timothy. And so ultimately, God sent Timothy to establish that church and to do that work. And I just, I just love just a simple thing that Paul drops in there. He says, Jesus Christ, our hope. Isn't Christ our hope? He's our hope. Jesus. That, that's what we have to learn to cling to and take hold of our hope. And you know, I, I would just encourage you, you know, when, when discouragement sets in, when the obstacle looks big, it, it's just a simple thing, but it's a hard thing to do when you're staring in the face of an obstacle to just cling to Christ, our hope. Amen. I don't know how I'm going to navigate this, but Jesus, I'm going to hang on to you. 
You're my hope. You sent me to serve your purposes. Verse 2 says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, my voice is really wonky. I got water here. What a great relationship these two shared. One of a father and son. And one of the things you notice about this introduction of Paul's letter is this, is that it's different from all his other letters. The way that he greets Titus and Timothy, actually. You know, Paul always says, grace and peace. I mean, we've talked about that so many times. We've done differences. Grace and peace is his greeting. But to Timothy, he, he tosses something else in there. Something personal to his son in the faith. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. He, he throws mercy into the mix to his son in the faith because that's the heart of a father to his son, you know. If there's anybody that I have more mercy on than usual, it's my kids because they're my kids. And so grace to them, peace to them, but there's an extra measure of mercy. And, and that was Paul to Timothy. And so the first thing Paul's going to talk about here a little bit is the nature of heresy. Okay, let's check it out. Verse 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach difficult doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Uh, the missionary work, the work that Timothy was doing in Ephesus was a serious task. You know, church is not a game. It's not a game. It's serious business. We're in the business of souls. We're in the business of the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, the kingdom of God is true reality beyond some of the things we see in this world with our eyes. It's not a game. And there are true false teachers who've devoted their lives to myths. They've devoted their lives to, to promote speculations. And, and you know, the thing is about a false teacher is this. They don't waste their time targeting non-church people. They don't waste their time targeting those who don't follow Jesus Christ because they don't need to. They're already not following Christ. False teachers, their goal is to shipwreck the faith of a believer. Their purpose is to lead Christians astray from following Jesus to following themselves. And so to emphasize the, the seriousness of what was going on, Paul says, look, charge certain people. They've got to stop. Charge them not to teach any different doctrine. Charge them. It's a proclamation, a command, a commandment. It, strictly. That speaks of like a commanding officer speaking to a junior officer. Deliver it, Timothy. Even if your nature is to be timid. In fact, three times in this, in this chapter, uh, three times in this chapter, Paul, Paul will use a word to remind Timothy that he was not just a pastor in a tough city, but that he was a soldier who was under the command of the Most High. Okay, you're in the Lord's army, Timothy. It's a yes, sir. You're a soldier and your orders are from the king. Now pass on the orders to the rest of the soldiers in the church. Now what was the order? Don't teach different doctrines than I do, he says. 
Don't teach things that are opposed to the things that, that Paul had taught. Paul, Paul had been committed uh, to, by the Lord, uh, the doctrines of the church, theology, the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul had committed it to Timothy. And it was Timothy's responsibility to guard it, to care for it, and then ensure that it, had, it too was passed on to responsible men, reliable men. And so there's a danger in the midst of that whole process of, of guarding the truth and passing it on to other reliable men that others might sneak in and, and bring heresy, false teaching. And so you, you might ask, well, what does that look like? What, what, what kind of things are earmarks of false teaching? Well, uh, Paul doesn't give us a comprehensive list here, but he says here's a couple things that you should watch for. He says devotion to myth and endless genealogy. See, false teachers, they, they were using the Old Testament. They were using certain things from the scriptures, especially the genealogies, to manufacture myths and new doctrines to lead people astray. You know, one time years ago when I was a youth pastor in the city, uh, I, I spoke at our church, and I don't even remember where I was preaching from. But somewhere in that text, I gave a small reference to Boaz and his character. I was preaching about Jesus. And, you know, after the sermon, I was hanging out and stuff like this. I had a guy come up to me, and he was all jacked up. He's pumped up. And he said to me, you know, I'm a part of a group called the Masons. And your speaking on Boaz was just awesome. And he went off about Boaz. Because in the midst of their miss and endless genealogies, Boaz is so important. And they, you know, in their rituals, use him as a model. I, it's exactly what Paul's warning of. And in that conversation, I said, the message wasn't about Boaz. The message was about Jesus. What was he devoted to? Myth and endless genealogy leading astray. Paul also says the other thing you watch for is speculations. You know, the forming of theory or conjecture without firm evidence. You know, in, you know, in investments, you speculate on stocks, property, other ventures in the hope that it's going to make you money. Paul says false teachers will do that same sort of practice, spiritually speaking. Uh, they will raise questions, spiritual speculators, and then I think, you know, they don't answer them. I look at some of the things that are happening in the church culture. I think of the emerging church movement. And I think, man, that's a movement that loves to speculate, but never really gives firm answers at, at the end of the, the day. They question everything and don't provide an answer. And I think, you know, the danger there is it's good to ask questions. It's good. The danger is stumbling the faith of others when we don't say, here's the question and here's the answer in the word of God. You know, there's an old saying that I love, I hang on to, it's this. If it's, if it's new, sorry, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. Now, John Corson, one of my favorite Bible preachers, he says this to, to those desiring to be Bible teachers. He says, I give you this advice. Give up trying to be creative and innovative. Instead, stick with the simple, powerful gospel, and you will never, ever go wrong. 
He won't. You know, I, I, I once had somebody say to me, you know, you preach and you teach like we've never heard any of this before and none of it's new. And I said, well, you know, praise God then because I'm accomplishing exactly what I'm seeking to do in the pulpits. You know, I took their intended criticism as a word of encouragement, actually. The gospel doesn't need my improvement. And the gospel doesn't need your improvement. It needs your proclamation. Jesus saved me, and this is how you can be saved. See, sound doctrine produces in our, in our lives a faithfulness to the Lord and, and a, a stewardship towards the things of God that is by faith. You know, that is to say, you know... Um, Sound doctrine promotes the work of God. Sound doctrine promotes God's people to take steps of faith when it comes to the work of God. Obstacles and opportunities, then I'm going to walk in faith with the things God has put in front of me. Let's take a step of faith. Oh yeah, but we're pushed in our finances and we're not sure if, you know, take the step of faith. But is God calling me to step in here and Take the step of faith. Oh, I'm not, I'm afraid to speak. I don't take the step of faith with that person or whatever it is. That's what God's work calls us to do. Check out verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul's saying this, proper teaching, proper apostolic teaching, proper teaching in the pattern that Paul laid down for Timothy will produce spiritual transformation in people's lives. Uh, and it will produce it because it's rooted in love. A pure heart is the work of the spirit. You know, the heart with, without God is wicked. And, and it's deceitful. It's sinful. And it is God by the work of his Holy Spirit that purifies our hearts. You know, the, the heart cannot be changed just by modifying the outside of the cup, by changing the clothes or seeking to change your behavior. Okay, well, I'll just change my behavior. Look, that's not going to change your heart. It's window dressing. It's a facade. You it's lipstick on a pig. That's what it is. I mean, it's still a pig. You're not going to want to kiss that. <laughs> Ever. My heart needs Jesus Christ to change it. My heart needs the spirit of God to work. My conscience to be good needs the blood of Christ applied to, to cleanse my sin. So that it's good and it's clean and it's pure rather than laden with the guilt of a heavy conscience. You and I need, we, we need the word of God to produce in us what Paul calls here sincere faith. Rather than faith that's full of hypocrisy. And pretense and, and based on speculation and based on devotion to myths and genealogies. Faith rooted in, in speculation is a faith that is based on theory without evidence. And the Bible tells us this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses that we know well. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things that were visible. Ro Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The just 
shall live by faith. That's not about devotions to myth. It's not about devotions to genealogies or bloodlines. It's assurance in the belief of the promises of God. Check out verse 6 and 7. He says this. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. See, the reasons for these false doctrines was the misuse of Old Testament law, he says. False teachers do not understand the purpose and the function of Old Testament law. False teachers fail to understand that God's law is fulfilled in my life and in your life when I walk in faith after Jesus Christ. When Jesus has my heart. When with sincere faith we follow Christ. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the scripture tells us we're free from the curse of the law. See, you know, we, we read Old Testament law and we always think, oh, it's, it's always about behavior. Behave this way, behave this way, behave this way, behave this way, behave this way. But see, the law was never about behavior. It was always about heart. Always. Always about heart. Does Christ have your heart? Then the law is fulfilled. And Paul says, you know, when, when people move away from that, they, they swerve. Literally, they miss the mark. They begin to go off track. They begin to go off course. Like, like a ship that, that lost sight of the, the land that it was headed for. Whoosh, off it goes. But the law does have its place. So Paul reminds Timothy, what's the purpose of the law? Verses 8 through 11. Now we know the law is good. There it is. It's good. If one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. See those things? They're contrary to sound doctrine. Contrary to the gospel. Verse 11. In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. See, the law is good. The law is good. The law teaches us how to live. But, but the purpose of the law, well, well, the purpose of the law is not to save you. It only reveals to us our need for the Savior, as we know. The law reveals our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Before Jesus, yes, we were under the law. Uh, the law of sin and death. It, the law issued the charge that we were guilty of sin and it proved it because of the behavior. But the gospel is this. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm then in your freedom. Now, now the false teachers in Ephesus were doing this. They were taking these free Christians and they were heaping the burden of the law upon them, leading them out of the freedom of grace into the bondage of law, leading them into the bondage of legalism. And, you know, I, I would say that continues to be the tactic of the false teacher all the time, to lead, lead you into bondage, lead you into legalisms, it leads you into a life of works. And why does it work? It, why does that tactic of false teachers work? Because my human flesh and your human flesh 
loves rules and regulations. You say, no, I don't. I'm telling you, you do. I, I, I always say, man, I'm such a rebel. I like to think of myself that way. The myth, the legend, the man. <laughs> you know, but the reality is every human heart loves religion, loves rules, loves law. Because by law and religion and rules, I can say, look at me. I'm so much better than that guy. Look at me. I'm so much better than that neighbor, that person, that this. Human flesh loves religion, loves rules, loves regulations because on the outside I can appear to be godly while in the inside my heart can be far from God. I mean, human flesh loves religion and rules and regulations because I, I, I can clean the upside, outside of the cup and my heart doesn't have to change and nobody needs to know it. But Jesus Christ came to set us free on the inside. He came to give us new hearts. Not so that we could, you know, finally follow through with legalism and rules, but so that we could be free from law, free from sin and death. But for those who still are lost in sin, those who are blind in sin, as the Bible says, who are dead in their sin, for them the law is very powerful because it reveals they fall short of the glory of God. You know, I think of some of, you know, honor your father and mother, Ten Commandments. You know, do not murder. How Jesus took that, he said, man, I'm telling you, if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You know, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't give false testimony against your neighbor. You know, the, the law is powerful. As we know, when, when it comes against our, it, it, it brings condemnation to sin. And so, you know, Paul's saying to Timothy here, you, you know, you need to teach sound doctrine, healthy spiritual living that's wholesome and that, that's good compared to what those guys are teaching that leads people into bondage and sickly behavior. Now look at verse 11, just for a second. In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You know, the gospel God, man, Christ, faith. That simple message of Jesus Christ coming for humans uh, caught in the bondage of sin and death. The gospel manifests the glory of God. The blessed God. You know that word blessed just means happy, right? Oh, how happy. And when the Bible says blessed is the man... Oh, how happy is the man. Look at this. Paul's saying God is blessed. That happiness, that goodness, that all, that all of that is sourced from God. It's the nature of who he is. And the gospel flows out of that. It manifests his glory. And so, Timothy, you got to watch for false teaching. You got to watch for false teaching, Timothy, and, and watch for these earmarks, endless genealogies, myths, speculations. But you also need to do this, Timothy. You need to proclaim the gospel. You got to proclaim it because as you proclaim it, God's glory is manifest. The blessing of God comes upon his people. Look at, look at verse 12. 
I, I thank him. Actually, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to jump there yet. You know, I was just thinking, you know, when I go to the doctor, I, I go to the doctor because I, I'm looking for two things. Give me a remedy and fix it, man. And, you know, that's what the gospel, that's, well, first of all, the law. The, the law gives me my diagnosis, sin and death. The gospel gives me my remedy, Jesus Christ, his blood. He died for your sin. And sound doctrine teaches grace to the believer, grace to those who are in Christ, but it also proclaims law to the sinner. And it brings both the sinner and the believer to Jesus. Solution, always the solution, Jesus. When I was on this side of sin, Jesus was the solution. And now that I'm on this side of sin, Jesus is the solution. And it's the responsibility of the pastor and it's the responsibility of the people of God in Ephesus and the people of God in Gibson's to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul, you know that story, Acts chapter 9, his salvation story, the road to Damascus. You read that story and it's incredible. Go home today and read Acts chapter 9, the story of Paul's salvation. It'll blow your mind. I mean, really spend some time and look at it. It tells you that God's saving power knows no limits. Think about what Paul used to be in. He's going to talk about it. Verse 12, check it out. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Hey, Paul, what he used to be, I mean, the Bible tells us well what he was, and he tells us, he says, I was a blasphemer. You know, Paul denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He denied the power of the cross. He, he forced others to deny Jesus with whatever means necessary. And if you wouldn't, then he stood by and approved your death. He says, I was a, I was a persecutor. You know, Paul used all of his phys physical and intellectual power and everything that he had to oppose the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and anyone who would proclaim him. Women, children, men, it, he, Paul did not care. He persecuted the church and he breathed out murderous threats against the followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, you think about it. You got anybody in your life who actually verbalizes murderous threats against you because you follow Jesus? That's how insane Paul was, okay? Imagine that. Your neighbor's saying, I'm going to kill you if you follow Jesus. That's Paul, okay? Murderous threats, an insolent opponent, you know, he was rude and his attack against Christ was arrogant and it lacked respect. There was no tolerance in Paul. Okay. I don't think he wouldn't fit in in Canadian society where we're all so loving and tolerant of one another. Paul prior to Jesus did not exhibit a single ounce of tolerance towards a Christian. Paul was counted amongst the most religious and educated men of his, of his day. He was brilliant, and yet he was blinded from, truth of, from the truth of Jesus Christ. And, and he says, look, the cause of my godless behavior was this. I, I was an ignorant man. 
I, I was ignorant and I was unbelieving. Look at verse 13. He, he says, though, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You know, what an amazing thing it is that in, in spite of my past sin, God would be gracious enough to entrust me with the gospel. What an amazing thing that in spite of your past sin, God would entrust you with the gospel. That he would make you his representative on this earth. In your workplace. In your family. In this community. That's the grace of God, my friends. You know, I was unbelieving. You were unbelieving. You know, at times I'm still unbelieving towards the things of God as all, as all, are all of us. And yet God in his grace has entrusted to us the very thing that manifests his glory, the gospel. And see, I would say it's for this reason. You, you and I make God look really good. <laughs> and that, you know, so often when the, when the world looks at the church, they go, what a bunch of hypocrites. You know why that happens? Honestly, I, I believe it's because we fail we fail to properly proclaim the blessing and the power of God that is manifest in the gospel. The world should look at the church and say this, there must be a freaking God, man. <laughs> it's okay to say that with some humor. Look, nobody else would pick that team, okay? I'll take you, you, you away, man. Nobody else would pick this team. I love you guys, but it's the truth, okay? Nobody would pick me. That's God. That's his grace. That's his mercy for his glory and for his name. Look at what Paul was. Pick Paul? Yeah, right. You would not pick Paul to be the most powerful, you know, preacher or, or apostle or representative of the mission of God on the face of the earth. You wouldn't pick him. He's the last person that would ever come to your mind if you were walking the face of the earth that day, those, in those days. Only God. Only God. Only a powerful message of good news could change a man like Paul. A murderer, a persecutor, an insolent man. You know, and I would say to us this morning, as I was thinking about this myself, I mean, don't be deceived about what you were before Christ. Only Jesus could transform your life. Only Jesus Christ could transform this life. Only Jesus could save this crew. Only Jesus. And so Paul says this in verse 15, a great verse. Highlight it, underline it, brackets, circles, mark it up. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's going to say this to, to, to Timothy a few times. Timothy, if I say one thing... You're, you know, it's one of those parent parental speeches. This is a truth you must hold on to. This, this truth is worthy of your full acceptance and your devotion, your trust. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I mean, like I said, again, how could, 
anyone ever think that God would save such an arrogant, self-righteous man as Paul? And the answer is this, mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. God in his mercy didn't give Paul what he deserved. God, rather in his grace, gave Paul what he did not deserve. Grace and mercy, the love of God in action. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of its benefits imparted to that man. God, because of his love, paid for the sin of Paul on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to save him. And the beauty of salvation is is this, is he did it for me and he did it for you as well. He did it for all who would receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Paul could be saved, then, you know, there's hope for all of us. If he's the foremost among sinners, which is a good saying, all of us should adopt for ourselves, but I mean, he might take the cake. Um, If he can do it for Paul. You, do, you know, you, you just think where God's placed you and the people that are around you in this life. I encourage you, who's the foremost sinner in your life? Begin to pray for them. Begin to pray for them that the Lord would save them because it'll be grace and it'll be mercy and Jesus will get the glory. You know, and I, I just think, it's, isn't the gospel awesome? It's awesome. You know, there's, there's two classes of sinners, like I was saying, almost in a sense here. There are sinners who think themselves to be righteous, as did Paul before his conversion. And then there are sinners who feel themselves to be sinners. Jesus Christ can save both. And that gives me hope, you know. And, and Paul, the way Paul was, he, he acted because he was an ignorant man. And that shows me just, you know, again, how undeserved salvation uh, was, you know. I, and I think about the years that I followed Jesus Christ. You think about the years that you have followed Jesus Christ and the way that you've grown in knowing the Lord. And yet still, we're just scratching the surface on the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the depth and the character that is yet to be discovered and, Man, was I ignorant, but I certainly haven't arrived. My salvation was undeserved, and it's still undeserved, and Jesus is way better than I ever thought, and it's only going to get better. And so Paul goes on. He he begins to talk about what he became. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason as the foremost, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I mean, you wonder about how big God's grace is. I mean, what, is, what are the limits of grace and how far it can stretch to save the sinner? Man, the grace of God can turn the persecutor into a preacher. The grace of God can take a murderer like Paul and make him a missionary. You know, the grace of God can take him a blasphemer and turn him into a blessing for the people of God. God's grace can take the the insolent opponent and he can take him and make him a man that becomes a father, like a father to another man, mentoring him in the things of God and in righteousness and in following Jesus Christ. You know, God takes, the grace of God takes us from lifeless existence, dead in our sin, to where we're born again and carry in our hearts the hope of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what grace can do. And that's what grace did in the life of Paul. And Paul became an example to the entire world. His life teaches, man, God saves sinners. 
And that's what your life is meant to be. Man, God can save people. Look at that guy. Look at that woman, what Jesus has done. And so when Paul wrote about, you know, the grace and mercy of God that he experienced, that's why for a second here, he has no choice but to interject just this word of praise. And if you check out the next verse, he, he's like, I, I just have to stop and worship God for a moment as I consider this. Look at it. Verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor and power forever and ever. Amen. That's Paul in the midst of it, right? He's like, I can't explain what's happened in my life. I was this, 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 and this, and I'm, I'm not, I don't even want to tell you the rest. And Jesus changed me. And then Paul gives a third responsibility to the, to the pastor and to the people of the church. Look at, deal with heresy, proclaim the gospel, and the third one is this, defend the faith. Verse 18, through to the end. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By this, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have already handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now again, you know, Paul just returns to the use of military language. There it is. I, I, in, I charge you. I, I entrust this to you. Uh, a command, again, handed down from the superior to his junior officer. And as Paul delivers the charge, he, he reminds Timothy of the call of God that's on his life. Timothy, you were chosen for ministry. Timothy, the elders gathered around you and they laid hands on you and they prophesied over you. You were chosen for ministry, Timothy. And, and you know, there, there are those of you here in this room where times in your life, elders and church leaders, they gathered around you and they laid hands on you and maybe they prophesied over you and they called you to the ministry. It's irrevocable. It's there. Buried, suppressed, crushed, whatever it is, the charge of God still stands in your life, my friends. You're called to the ministry. You're called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul starts there. Timothy, let's just square things away here. There's no question about the call. It's there. It exists. You've been prophesied over. You've been prayed for. You're the man. I sent you, do the job. Timothy had been chosen for the ministry, just like Paul had been. Yeah, I would say this, you know, it's not easy to serve God, right? We all know that. It is not easy to serve God when you live in a pagan city like Ephesus. It's not easy to serve God in a pagan community like Gibson's, like the Sunshine Coast. I feel like it's cranking. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. But man, it just feels like it's getting more and more godless. You know, it's not easy to serve God when there are members in your own household, maybe, who blaspheme the name of our, of our Savior. 
It's not easy to serve God when, you're, when you go to school and, and students around you make a mockery of faith. You know, it, it, it's not easy to serve God when there's people in your workplace that are insolent against the name of Jesus and they, they, they use his name as a curse word. And a... I know Timothy, Paul is saying, I, I know it's not easy. But the fact of the matter is, you're called. You got your orders. Take the hill. Good Christian soldier, you have your orders. Timothy, God called you and he sent you to Ephesus and his mercy and his grace is upon your life. He sent you, you have a divine appointment and a divine mission. And Timothy, when you go to, there in Ephesus, you are to wage good warfare. You, you hold to the faith and you keep that conscience clean before the Lord, Timothy. You know, that, that, that's what he says here. Good warfare here has two qualities to it. You hold to the faith. You know, we, we don't just profess faith with our lips. We, we need to practice our faith with our lives. And to hold on to faith means this. You let it permeate everything that you are. Jesus gets to touch it all. He, he gets to have the glory in it all. In the speech, in the actions, in, in the finances, in the relationships, and everything. Jesus first. He gets it. You hold on to him and you let him, let it permeate. But he also says this. Yeah, good warfare Holds to faith, but good warfare also has a good conscience. You know, it's important to have a, a, a good conscience. You know, a man or woman with a good conscience does what God wants them to do in, in spite of who's watching and who's not watching. But the other side of the coin is this. When your conscience is seared or there's things in there that are unconfessed and not repented for before the Lord and there's hidden sin... You know, that conscience will breed thoughts that will tell you you are not worthy to represent the name of Jesus. You are not worthy for the place of ministry. You are not worthy of the supposed call that's upon your life. And the key then to a clear conscience is this, humble repentance before Jesus Christ. You know, if, if your conscience has got you this morning, the, the, there's, there's, a, there's a fix. There's a remedy. His name is Jesus. It was the remedy before you knew him, and it's the remedy now that you know him. It never changes. The blood of Christ washes us of our sin, and he makes that conscience clean and good. And I, I think about that, you know, good warfare. That sounds kind of weird. Sounds like an oxymoron to me. But look, we are soldiers in a battle that involves life and death. I, I'd call teaching sound doctrine. I'd call proclaiming the gospel. I'd, I'd call defending the faith good warfare, wouldn't you? And part of defending the faith is exposing the lies of those forces and false doctrines that, that, that might be like, you know, hidden reefs that, that could shipwreck someone's spiritual faith. And Paul actually gives two examples of Men or friends of theirs that may have done ministry. I mean, we don't really know a lot about these guys. But he, he says, you know, Hymenaeus and Alexander. 
And it's interesting that Paul points out the sin in their lives. He says it's blasphemy. Now that might sound terrible that he would say that about them, but he said it about himself. I was a blasphemer. Okay, I know what blasphemy is, and it's in those two men's lives. You know, they spoke against the things of God. They must have been defaming the name of Jesus. Alexander could be the Alexander that we read about in the book of Acts. And Paul prayed that God would remove from them a protective hedge. He says, I handed them over to Satan. I, I, I exposed them to the real enemy. In the hopes that it would lead them to repentance. See, Paul's purpose here was not punitive. It was restorative. His hope was that these men would find repentance. Uh, that was his prayer. But that's a harsh action to take, isn't it? He handed them over. You know, just in conclusion, I, I, I might ask you this morning, what has God called you to? What has God called you to? What's the mission? What, what is the calling? In the midst of that, you teach sound doctrine, you proclaim the gospel, you defend the faith, you hold on to the faith, you look after that conscience before the Lord. You take it to the cross. In the midst of that, spiritual transformation happens. It's a work of God. I can't make it happen. You can't make it happen. We need the spirit of God to change our lives and to use our lives for his glory and for his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite Mary and Beth to come. We're going to close with a song. Why don't you guys stand with me while they're coming up? Let's pray. Let's take our consciences before the Lord this morning. Jesus, uh, we, we just bring our conscience before you this morning, Lord. I'm sure there are some that are carrying guilt, Lord, condemnation. Maybe even it's been seared up a little bit, Lord. God, we ask that you touch them this morning, that you'd heal them. Jesus, right now before you, we repent. We are sinners, Lord. I change my mind, God, about those things that have so much power about me and, and, and in which I turn to in rebellion against you, Lord. And, and before you, Lord, they're not right. I bring them to you, Jesus. I ask, God, that you'd forgive me. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would wash me in the blood, that you'd make my conscience good and clean before you. I pray, God, that as we live in this community, that you would help us to, to live with good consciences. And Father, we ask for the strength that you would help us to be men and women who hold to the faith, who hold tightly to Christ, who recognize and have the wisdom to see that which is not sound doctrine, who proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who defend the faith, Father, we may face those who are insolent, who oppose us, who call us hypocrites, who, who sneer at the simplicity of our faith. But Father, we ask that you would help us to hold tightly to Jesus. Father, we pray that in our lives, like in Paul's life, people would see the glory of God and that they would wonder what possibly could have happened here. 
Jesus, we pray that people would see you when they look at us. Would you be glorified in our hearts, in our lives, and in our church, we pray, Jesus. In your glorious name, amen.